We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is uh, Politics Friday with uh, Bob Brandon and Hampton Keithley. And we are working through a book by Gene Merrill. What did you call it? Something Dominion? Everlasting Dominion. Yeah, Everlasting Dominion. And uh, so it's sort of a biblical theology uh, approach. And, of the Old uh, Testament. That's right. So let me, but let me, <laughs> as is my want. Yes, let I'm me, excited. <laughs> okay. Well, that's where we need to decide. I need to ask you if you're excited, because I am. <laughs> but the, then the second thing I want to ask you is, you, you've you heard me say uh, any number of times that the Bible is the most political book I've ever read. And l- look at the title of Merrill's Old Testament Biblical Theology, Everlasting Dominion. Does dominion sound like a political term? Uh, more, more so recently. <laughs> and so why would you name your software that's supposed to just count votes, which I can't imagine is all that complicated. Votes binary, right? Yes or no. Right. I, it doesn't sound like a complicated system to me, but it's incredibly complex. Why, why would you even have a complex system for counting? But let alone, why would you name it Dominion? if it wasn't a political device? I mean, how obvious can you be? Does seem like a good question. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so the reason we're going to Merrill is I think he's, you know, for me, he's just fantastic on on the Old Testament in any areas of theology, but particularly the Old Testament. So we'll use him as our guide to walk through some concepts. I don't know if you you know this, but... uh... He wrote a, I think it was Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. He wrote a commentary on those. And um, he was about to get published with, uh, I think it was Word at the time, or Moody. I can't remember what company. And then they canceled the series right after they said they were going to publish his book. Oh. And so it didn't really get published. And so I ended up publishing his commentary uh, for him through Bible.org. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna have to access that at some point. So yeah. I'll I'll look forward to that. He's any comments he makes. I always just try and absorb them. In, in fact, that's what I would hold out for our listeners, Hampton, especially in the format that we're using. You know what I would call conversational theology. What's required of the listener is absorption. 
just absorb it. You, you don't have to memorize it. You don't even necessarily have to learn it, though through absorption, you will learn it. Just listen to it and absorb it that way. It'll it'll have its effect on you. Yes. It so will. and then so back to what we're or at least what in my mind I'd like to do for our listeners. You know, we started with Van Drun and then addressing the situation. Is is politics even a worthwhile uh, endeavor, task, or something to know as a Christian? Is it legitimate? And it certainly is. As we went through Van Drun, we we learned that that is part of God's plan, His His big plan for for governing the earth so we looked at those things for a number of weeks then i wanted to go to merrill to dig out the biblical theology headed towards politics and to build it this way we want to look at what is a human being then we want to look at uh, the theology of the individual then we want to look at the theology of the clan then we want to look at the theology of the tribe then we want to look at the theology of a nation. Then we're going to go from there to the groundwork of uh, the founding fathers for laying out our political system that we use in the U.S. And then we will contrast all of that with communism. So by the end of that road, I believe our listeners, if they absorb what we're saying, will have a tremendous insight especially if they combine it with what we're doing on our worldview podcast into the events of the day. Right. So that's why I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start this way. Let's have the biblical text in our mind. You know, often when I'm talking to people and I refer to something in the Bible um, by a, by chapter and verse, you know, they'll nod their head, but I know they don't really have that passage in their mind. They've heard of it before and they've read it a couple of years ago, but it's not fresh in their mind. And certainly the context is not fresh. I'm, you remember when we turned to Jeremiah to, oh, this chapter is a letter to the captives in Babylon. Well, people don't know that. They just know Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> I, have good, I have good plans for you. <laughs> Indeed. So we need to set the biblical text uh, in people's minds. So here's Genesis 1. We'll start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. Now, he goes into talking about the plants and things like that. And we'll skip down to verse, well, I want to show you something in verse four but of chapter two. But as you get to chapter two, you know, we've made this point before, but I want to make it again because I, I want our listeners to be wise. The chapters and verses, as far as 
numerals right. were, were not written in the original text. <laughs> they weren't written until the, you know, the Middle Ages, like Stephanus or something like that, if I remember right, in the 17th century, 17th or 18th century, really as a way so that you could converse and refer to things and, and people would know. That's why, for instance, you know, in the New Testament, sometimes when they quote the Old Testament, they don't give a chapter and a verse. They'll say like, Jeremiah somewhere said. In other words, right. they know they right. know Jeremiah and they know what he said, but they, they don't know what chapter that is. That wasn't added in until much, much later. Right. The reason I'm saying that is the way Moses wrote this and we've divided, you know, these chapters, this is sort of an unfortunate division here. Chapter two, verse one, really is still what I would call chapter one. And the reason you should really start chapter two in verse four of chapter two is, listen to how he starts verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Now that sure sounds like he's starting a new section. Right, right. And he uses it that way seven or eight times in Genesis. He'll say, this is the account. And you can tell he's on a new but related subject then. So anyway, chapter 2, verse 7, we'll start there, just so people have this in their mind. We're not going to read too much here. Then the Lord God formed man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Then let's start verse 18 of chapter 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the earth, of the field, and every bird of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each of the living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air and the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was asleep, he took a part of the man's side, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and the wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Okay, so those are the biblical texts we'll be talking about today. Now I'm going to turn to Merrill. You know, one of the reasons I pause Hampton when I'm reading is because I came to faith in 1981. Ever since that day, it was in the spring of 1981, I've been reading the New American Standard. <laughs> <laughs> chapters a day and then right. now I, now I read the net and I've you know so much of it, it you know your brain is sort of ahead of you as you're reading 
you know what you're going to read next. But now that I'm reading the net, it's not what I thought. I you know what I mean? It's a yeah, little different wording. Right. So so I pause because my my brain is already saying it in the new American standard. But then I'm like, oh, slow down. son. So a that's more, why. it's a little more dynamic. There you go. So here's what I want to look at. Uh, this is going to be. This is going to be really interesting, I think. So if you have any kind of question, just stop me and, and we'll discuss it. Here's, here's Merrill. We have noted repeatedly that Genesis presents two creation narratives, one in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. So I'm stepping outside of Merrill now. Remember, that's what I was saying. That's right. really a natural division. Right. Uh, and the other in Genesis 2-4 through 25. The former is sometimes described as the cosmocentric account because of its all-embracing view of the origins of all things in heaven and earth. That's how it begins. God created the heavens and the earth. So you're getting this macro view, whereas the latter is anthropocentric, so-called because its focus is on the creation of man. Within each of these, however, only a few verses relate directly to man's creation. We just read those. So despite their brevity, each of these demands careful exegesis for each is rich with theological potential. So let, let me step outside of Merrill for a second and make it made a comment. One time, uh, you know, through coaching, you get involved in people's lives. And this young girl, uh, not so great a swimmer, but just a great person had gone off to college. And I'm not going to say where I was so disappointed when, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when she came back with what she was saying, but uh, we sat down and we were talking and she said, you know, I, I didn't know there were two creation accounts. And I could tell by the way she said that, that she meant it critically. Right. I would I would say there's two creation accounts, but not in the way she meant it. She means, you know, that must have been two different people writing that. And they're saying contradictory things. That was the old JEPD theory or something <laughs> well, like that. similar to that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I said so and so that that's not what's going on. I said, tell me about your first year at school. And so she told me and then and I let her talk for you know, five, 10 minutes or so. Then I said, okay, let me review that for you because it sounded like you were giving me two different accounts there. First, you were just telling me about your roommates and stuff like that. Then you were telling me about the classes you took. So do you think I should assume you're really two different people telling me that? Or should I just assume it's you and at first, you just wanted to talk about your roommates. Then you wanted to talk about the classes. I said, the, those accounts in Genesis are not contradictory. Moses is giving you the big picture in the first chapter, and then he's giving you a tighter view in the second chapter. So they're not contradictory. Well, of course, she'd never heard that. And that's just some of the stuff people run into when they go into, quote, higher education. It's really become in our country more like higher indoctrination, right? They're, well, they called it higher criticism, didn't they, in the high, seminaries? Criticism. Yeah. So 
Okay, back to Merrill, because we're, we're about to really pick up some great speed here. After having created everything else in five days, on day six, the Lord made, and that's the Hebrew verb, asa, both wild and domesticated land animals, then created, that's the Hebrew verb, bara, man. The one should not make too much distinction between these two verbs, since they're sometimes used interchangeably. It's nonetheless a fact that bara occurs in the Hebrew Bible as a verb of creation with only God as the subject. Furthermore, in many of these instances, it connotes the idea of creation out of nothing. This is clearly the case in Genesis 1.1, since there's no hint whatsoever in the text of material pre-existent to the heavens and the earth from which they were made. A straightforward reading suggests that apart from God himself, Nothing existed until he spoke it into being. Let me step outside for a second now. So I love when he says, we mentioned this last time, a straightforward reading. And we said, well, why would you read it any other way? You know, well, it's because here's why there's actually an answer to that. The reason you would read it another way is because the text gets very compelling very quickly if you read it in a straightforward fashion. And people don't want it to be compelling. They don't want it to be authoritative. They want it to just be man-made. So they're gonna read it in other ways rather than straightforwardly. Here's a good precept to keep in mind concerning that. By straightforward, I would substitute, I, I like his word there. I wouldn't change what he said, but as far as comprehension, I would posit the word normal. Take it in a normal sense. That's how you and I communicate. That's how all our relationships are communicated throughout our lives in a normal way. If you're goofing off with your friend, you're ski- skiing on Vail Mountain or something, you're using a little more slang because of that environment and so on. But that's normal. Right. Right. So I uh, let me give you a little story about that, too, because this is fun. You're going to think over time, you, nobody's going to want to have walked in my shoes because I've had so many bizarre, con- <laughs> bizarre confrontations with people. I was at a, a Christian gathering. I'll leave it undesignated <laughs> but Christian a retreat thing with uh, other teachers of high school kids and so we're all having a meal together and I never tell people where I went to school because I don't like being pigeonholed I've, I'm not ashamed of my institution at all I, lo- I loved it and, and I'll defend it no problem but people are going to pigeonhole you right so so this young lady says, um, you know, I feel sorry for you out of the blue. And uh, <laughs> there, there could be a couple hundred reasons to feel sorry for me. You Did know, she so, find out where you went to school? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I, I said, why? And she said, because of where you went to school. And I said, well, why, why does that cause you sorrow? You know, it's because I'm thinking maybe it was a dress code. When I was there, you had to wear a suit and tie. And that did sort of well, he also, he also had the Walverd uh, handbook that said no drinking. 
well, <laughs> I might not have read that in a straightforward manner. <laughs> but uh, I, I actually had some uh, people talking about when they went to school there. They said, yeah, we never drank in class or something like <laughs> that, you know. Yeah, context, it's all a context <laughs> thing. So so she, you know, expressed her sorrow. I, I said, why? And she said, well, you take the Bible so uh, literally. And I said, well, you mean normally? She said, yeah. And I said, well, let me get this straight. You feel sorry for me because I take the Bible normally. Is that correct? And she said, yeah, that is correct. And I said, do you know how I got that correct? I took you normally. And Hampton, she picked up her tray of food, slammed it on the table. It, most of it went all over me and stomped out of the dining room. Wow. I mean, I couldn't believe the, and there was no, I'm not leaving out any extra context or, you know, any other reason she would be upset. That really offended her mm -hmm. that I put her on the spot that way. But everybody wants to be understood normally, right? right. Try, try understanding them less than normally and see, see how long you get before they get pretty frustrated with you and just walk away. So that's Back like to Mary. That, that's like that. What's that kid's book? Amelia Bedelia. I, I'm not. She, I don't um, know. Well, go ahead. I can't remember any details, but she's she's always taking things wrong. She'll read something, and it's it's not the normal meaning of yeah. But and it, it creates humor. Yeah. Right. You're right. laughing yeah. at it because you know that's not the right way to do that. Right. So okay, back to Meryl. So the second use of bara, that's the Hebrew verb create with God as the subject, often means out of nothing. In the narrative appears in verse 21, which marks a major distinction between the fourth and the fifth day. Up until day five, no living creatures whatsoever had come into being. Light, darkness, the skies, the seas, vegetation, the sun, moon, and stars, all of these had appeared, but nothing yet called a living thing had emerged. Their creation, therefore, marked a significant step forward. Creatures, according to the kinds, that's in quotes, that were totally unrelated to anything that had preceded them. What set them apart was the fact that they were alive, possessing in some sense the breath of life, an important an impartation from God hitherto unknown. The third occurrence of bara is in the reference to the creation of man in Genesis 1.27. God had said, let us make man, and the result is that he created him. The making is generic. The creating is specific. That is, Man was made like everything else, but only he, along with the heavens and earth and living creatures, is said to have been created. The uniqueness of the heavens and the earth needs no comment. As for living creatures, their distinction from all that preceded them lay in their possessing the breath of life. What then was there? 
about man that set him apart from both the heavens and the earth and the other living beings? The answer lies not in the fact that he had the breath of life, though that distinguished him from the inanimate universe, but that the breath was communicated by divine inbreathing and not merely through the spoken word. So with the animals, I'm stepping outside of Merrill now. With the animals, they too are called living beings, but that's just because God designated them that way. With man, he actually breathed into man to create him a living being. So we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. To return to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it's instructive to observe the literary structure. So remember, we said on a previous podcast, maybe last time, the predominant form or genre of literature in the Bible is narrative. Right. Just huge chunks of the Bible are in narrative. But other chunks and even often embedded within the narrative are poetry. Right. Quite, quite, quite often in the Old Testament, you get poetic structures. So one of the basic features of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. So you say the same thing two lines in a row. Right. And you, you can tell which words are parallel. And then they're not repeat. Parallelism is not repetition, <laughs> though it can sound like that, right? We discussed that last right. time. Yeah. The, the parallel structure brings out a much fuller meaning. So here's Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is Hebrew parallelism. It's a poetic structure there. So uh, line A, God's description of man's nature. That corresponds to verse 26, the first half of verse 26. Line B, God's description of man's purpose. That's 26B. Then line A1, which is verse 27, God's creation of man. Then B1, God's commission to man. That's verse 28. So God's description, God's creation of man, that's parallel. God's description of man's purpose, God's commission to man, that's parallel. So keep that in mind. Now okay. we're going to get to the image of God. Here, I'm going to shortcut Merrill here and just lay this out the way it works in my mind. God in verses 26, right? Let us create man in our image. So the key preposition there is the preposition in, and it corresponds very closely with the Hebrew preposition, buh. <laughs> Their word buh is our word in. Okay. But prepositions are not words of definition. They're much more words of function. Even if you looked up in an English dictionary, what does the word in mean? You're going to find a page and a half. It, it's very hard to define that term. It almost entirely depends on the context, but more importantly, it depends on the function. Right. So here's another way the preposition buh in Hebrew, which we pronounce in, in English can be translated as. 
and it, it's not infrequent. The, the Hebrew preposition buh is, in, in is the most common use of it, but as is also very common. Okay. So let's read that proposition again, but put in the word as. Let us create man as our image. Okay, so those are your two choices. So you, you are very familiar with translation. You, you've worked heavily on the net. You, you know that subject inside and out. What, what would you put there? If both of those could be possibilities, and really those are the two main possibilities, what would direct you in one way or the other? Let us create man in our image or let us create man as our image. Well, I would use the word that I thought transferred the meaning or um, gave us the meaning more accurately. Okay. So, so what's the meaning I th that you're looking for here or trying to bring out? Okay. So in the ancient Near East, Babylon, for instance, when Nebuchadnezzar or the kings before him, he certainly wasn't the first Babylonian king or an Egyptian pharaoh. Remember Moses, who's writing this, raised and schooled in the Egyptian court, right, as one of Pharaoh's children, really. So when they conquer a territory, they leave an image of themselves there, right? Okay. What's that represent to the people there? Oh, well, our real king, our real master is in Egypt, but that's his image, you know, representing his rulership. So in other words, in, it sort of describes, the, the preposition in describes a location that there's God and then there's a thing called his image and mankind is in that is, he's located in that image. The word as is describing a function, okay. not a location. So in other words, what is the function of mankind? And we saw Merrill laid out the parallelism of those verses. In the same verses that describe man's creation, they also describe his job description. That sure sounds like a lot of function to me. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I read the text as God saying, let us make man as our image to rule over the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the creature. Right? Dominion. The purpose of mankind is to express God's dominion. I, to, me, the, to me, that's very clear. So I, I often in conversations with people will, will say that because they'll say, well, we're in the image. And I said, no, not exactly. That's not wrong to say that, but it's more accurate to say we are his image. Okay. And, and the reason that's critical is because that includes the job description. Just as Nebuchadnezzar would leave a statue in a conquered country to communicate his authority over them, so human beings represent to all the created world God's authority over the earth, right? That's our job. Okay. So that's important to remember. Merrill makes 
a lot of points about that. I'm going to skip them and I'm going to get over to this because it's really, here's where it gets interesting. Human history, then he talks about the fall and what happens with the image. I've skipped that. We, we lose our, we never lose our function. It's always our job description to rule, but now that's going to be done in a more difficult way. Now right. you're going to have to enforce it, right? For, for instance, you could see, let's imagine a little humor. So when uh, Adam is naming the animals, we, we read that in Genesis, right? Can, <laughs> by the way, when you read it in Genesis, it gives no hint that Adam was really puzzled about doing that. Like, you know, they bring the lion in front of him and he scratches his head and thinks about it for a while, looks over his shoulder because God's behind him. You know, what What do I do with this one? I don't know, he's got that big mane, you know, that he looks for, what, what should I call that? He's not doing that. He's just naming him. And whatever Adam says, it's law. And the, the fact that, naming them doesn't just mean uh, he's thinking of a fun first name, right? right? And then later on he gives, oh, I'm not making a scientific name and it'll have to do with his teeth or something. It's he just names them and whatever it is that sticks, the animal obeys, right? There's submission in God's natural order of creation. After the fall, you, I wouldn't suggest you going up to a wild tiger or lion and trying to exert your authority over him. <laughs> you know, maybe actually as a believer, I, I wouldn't necessarily shy away from that. But I mean, mostly that thing's going to look at you like lunch, right? Not, not like his king, like he did originally. So yet we have lions in the zoo. We have conquered them. But now you have to forcibly do it. You've got to use your brain, you know, everything God gave you. We can make weapons. We can make tools to become stronger than them. But originally, they just bow down to you because they recognized in you God's governorship, right? God's dominion. They recognized Adam as the expression of God's dominion over the earth. Now, when we fell... We didn't fall completely. You could say we fell on our faces, but it, it and it scratched us, but it didn't erase the image of God. So there are leftover vestiges of that dominion. And the place I see that the most clearly, I might have referred to this last time, as someday you got to come up here and meet my dog. He is so cool. And I'll tell you, he he will do whatever I tell him to do. And it's not because I forced it on him. I did train him as a puppy. You know, we got him at eight weeks old, which is about when you're supposed to, but it would break his heart for us not to be in fellowship. He's, he's not obeying me out of coercion. He obeys me because he really doesn't know any other way to live. And it, it's such a perfect illustration of our own relationships with the Lord. And he doesn't mind me petting him. He's not necessarily a cuddly guy. He's, 
he's pretty big, but, but he'll, he'll enjoy me scratching his ears or something. But if he's laying down and I lay down with him, he doesn't like that. And I think it's because that's a authority thing for him. He doesn't like me being on the same level with him. You know, he, he, he perceives me as above him and he naturally fits. That's where he's comfortable. That's how he wants it to be. He doesn't want to be pals. He, though he wants to play things like that, right? He's got a personality, but not as, as equals. And it, that's always, that's always been so, so interesting to me. And, and does that, does his obedience to that um, order of creation, do you think that lessens my affection for him or magnifies it a hundredfold? Yeah, magnifies it, sure. <laughs> Right? So imagine the Lord looking at us, right? It's not like he gave us a list of rules and wants us to obey those rules. And then, you know what, if you, if you do everything I tell you, then I'll, I'll get a little closer to you. That's not the correct way to perceive it, I don't think. I think it's perfect, closer to perfection, when we just obey him out of recognition of the creation order. You obey him because he's God. And, and we're created, right? Whatever he says, we do. And that brings us joy. That's that's not strict obedience. That's just the joy of fellowship. I mean, that's how I perceive it. So you've always well, known me. I mean, that's true of ra in raising kids. I mean, you don't just give them arbitrary rules to be mean. You You have years of experience and wisdom and you say you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. And, you know you hope that they're going to, you know, want to obey you out of love and respecting your, your wisdom and all that. And position. So is that, was that a description you just gave in the last 30 seconds mm -hmm. of the natural law? And you know, the natural law deeper because you've lived it. You're older. You have wisdom in that, that they couldn't possibly have. They're not that old. Right. There's no shortcuts to wisdom. So what you impart to your children is, look, this is the way the world really works. This is the natural law. And the more you abide by that, the smoother your path will be. The less you abide by it, you're in, you're in for trouble. Right. So, okay, now that was all warm up. Okay. <laughs> you being a well-trained swimmer now, you know the value of warm up. So here we go. Human history attest to the implacable distrust and fear that men and beasts mutually experience. Animals may be tamed and even put to human service, but the harmonious relationship indigenous to the creation purposes of God has been undermined and only by patient in ingenious training, can mankind bring about even a superficial semblance of dominion? I understand what he's saying, but I can guess Merrill doesn't have a dog. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I understand what he's saying. <clears throat> the historical exception to this dismal scene of creaturely recalcitrance relies on texts outside the Old Testament 
but these texts cannot for that reason alone be ignored in the present discussion since they have bearing on Old Testament eschatological perspectives concerning human rule. But what he's referring to, of course, is the New Testament. He's writing an Old Testament theology, but he's saying, you know, there's times when you got to look at what the New Testament has to say, because I love the old adage. I wish I could attribute it to its original speaker, but you, you remember this statement. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There's a lot of, you know, I wouldn't push that all the way to the wall, but there's a lot of wisdom in that. Mm -hmm. So what Merrill's drawing on is, you know, don't exclude the New Testament entirely, its perspective on the Old Testament theology. So here, we're going to pick him up again. We refer to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. What we propose in the following comments is done with a great deal of tentativeness. Since, as far as we can determine, we are virtually alone in making the case that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, frequently performed miraculous works to demonstrate not just his full deity, but also his role as the second Adam, who came to display in character and life what God had intended as the ideal for the whole human race. Let me put that in my words, because it's critical. And I remember the first time reading this, I forget when this book was published. It wasn't that, it's within 10 years. But I remember, so 2006, so 14 years. I remember reading this for the first time, just my eyes just popping open, just going, I've always thought that, and it's so good to have someone that's, you know, more or less an authority saying that's what he thinks too. Mm -hmm. So, so for let me give you an example. He's going to run through some examples, but I don't, I don't want to take the time to read all of those. I'm just going to give you the ones I see. So when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, was that because he's God? Or is that because Adam could do that before the fall? That's a really interesting question. And it's not necessary to answer that yes or no, or this or that. It's just important to consider that. Mm -hmm. my, my suspicion is it's because he's the second Adam. And Adam was given dominion over the earth. That was his job description. Subdue and rule the earth. Well, wouldn't calming a storm be part of that? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to, my mind goes to, was there a canopy? Were there even storms? Was, did it ever rain before Noah? Yeah. You know. Yes. And that, that's why I say it's not, it's not critical to answer the question. It's just critical to consider that. What are the limits on man as the image, right? Not in the image, 
but as the image. What are you limited to? For instance, he, here's where I would go to answer. See, your brain went to, you know, back to Genesis, which, which it should, right? And the can, were there storms and so on? My brain goes back to naming the animals and you get no hint that he's asking God for any input. It's just whatever Adam says, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not giving a direct answer and I, I don't need one. I just think it's really helpful to consider that because where we're ultimately going with this discussion is the governance of mankind. What system until the Lord's return is the best way to govern ourselves to carry out his objectives. Well, to do that, you have to first decide what exactly is a human being. And if Charles Darwin is your unassailable authority, <laughs> who only made a couple million mistakes in his life, like the rest of us, then you're going down the wrong path. But if your unassailable authority is God, who's never made a single mistake, and God says exactly what a human is, it's his image and man's purpose, then you're probably on the right path, <laughs> right? Okay. That, that's why we're belaboring these points. So it's just interesting to consider who a human being actually is. It's, it's critical for how we think going forward. So the next section in Merrill is really about the fashioning of mankind, like how God made him, how he formed him. And that's going to be critical, but maybe we've done enough for one podcast. Do you want to keep going or we've probably told enough stories along the way? To <laughs> I think we've been going for like 45 minutes or so. <laughs> that's probably a good place because we're at a very good stopping place. We're not in a hurry. What we're trying to do ultimately is lay the groundwork for political perception. How can you be sharp about what you're seeing in the events of the world that surround us? And how can you be accurate in your discernment and make correct decisions? So we're just laying the table for all that stuff. We, we've got time to do it. I, th I think it's a worthwhile path we're on. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, thanks a lot, man. I guess we'll talk to you next time. And next time, Hampton, you better be excited. I will be. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.